Welcome to the Glory Podcast. We're so glad that you're listening. Our mission is to declare God's glory. Please visit glorychurchkc.com to hear all of our other messages. Just to prep you, you can already get ready. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. That's where we're going this morning. If you have pre-read for the service, you know, bonus points to you, okay? You already know where we're going. I'm excited to dive into it with you. But if you were with us last week, uh, Jesus is enough, right? Jesus is enough. If you were with us, uh, it's this constant praise that Jesus is enough. That's what the book of Colossians literally just keeps saying, that he's enough. And so Paul had this prayer for the people, that they would come to realize that he's enough, that, they, that they, their strength would be his strength, that he's enough. And I'm really excited because it, it takes this claim that Jesus is enough, and I'm going to make it very personal to you, because Paul makes it very personal to us. He takes, hey, the, the Jesus that was born of a virgin named Mary, the Jesus that came of a, of a virgin birth, the Jesus that lived his life sinless, the Jesus that died on a cross, he's enough. But Paul will say in this over and over in really creative ways that he is a present God. When the angels come to Mary and they say, he will be called Emmanuel, right? God with us. Now, I just have a, I just have a claim. I think, the, uh, I think the world has this idea of a God and the world knows the idea of a Jesus, but those who know him call him Emmanuel. And I'll just, there is some growth in your life. There's some, some fears, some doubts. And honestly, I believe that though you have Jesus, you need to learn to call him Emmanuel. Because he's with you. He's a God that's not just enough, but he's enough at every place, at every time, at every moment, because he's not a distant, but a present God, the God with us. And so that's where we're getting into. Paul will hit it over and over. He's about to prove how, prove how present the claim of Jesus being enough is, how tangible. And so I just very quick, quick, quick. Those of you who are with us last week, this will be like a little, little, you know, recap. But those who are stepping in for the first time, here you go. Paul is in prison writing this letter. All right, so this is like a, uh, a mentor of mine in jail deciding to write to his follower, me, someone who he discipled, to write to his church. So these people don't know Paul. They're like, who is this guy in prison in chains writing to us? They don't know Paul. Paul doesn't know them. But Paul is writing with an awareness of who they are, what good is going on. If you remember last week, he's like, your faith and your love for the people of God is known everywhere. Like he's talked about, you're, you are busting out of the scenes with fruit. Just like fruit is going everywhere, fruit is going on in your church, Colossians. But he says, I also have heard a couple things. And so the whole book is battling two heresies, right? This is what we talked about last week. Two heresies of the faith. And if you don't know what that word means, rest assured, it's okay. The majority of the population doesn't either. So there you go. The word heresy is any teaching, any understanding, any word, any thought, any idea, any, uh, any anything, philosophy, that paints a portrait of God or humanity 
that is ulterior to the actual nature of God and humanity. Does that make sense? It's any idea, anything that says this is who God is and this is who he isn't that is actually wrong. That's a heresy. And so like heresies aren't always taught on, from the pulpit. Heresies are often taught through media, taught through the lies of our hearts. Heresies can be taught by the, I mean, the enemy's voice, he's the father of lies, is a heresy. Like, right, like everything he speaks is to taint the image of God. And so it's a heresy. And so that we, we talked about that. You can throw that word around and claim it what it is, but there are two main ones that, that Paul is battling in this. I told you last week, one is the Gnostics. And you're like, I don't know that word. It's just this belief that the reason I don't know God is because I don't know enough things. And the reason I can't understand God is because I'm ignorant. And so I need to pursue self-understanding. The reason I can't is because like, I need to know me. So I need to take this test. Like the Enneagram needs to tell me who I am so that I know how I, I can fit in with the Lord. And then as I self-discover who I am or as I pursue the stars and ask like what, I'm a Toro or I'm an Aries. Like what does that mean for me? And if I can find my place in this world, then I can understand the God who put me in this world. And so the Gnostics would be constantly like, how do you fit, discover yourself, or higher knowledge so that you can understand God? And Jesus is like, I'm God. I came, made myself very known, very tangible. And then the other side, if you remember, was that's the Gnosticism. And the other side, uh, that's like, you know, Oprah's self-help Let's, let's just take all of the, the knowledge of man and just learn it, pile all the religions together. We can figure out God by doing that. And God's like, no, you figure out me by accepting me. Uh, and so then the other ones are the Judaizers. And I told you, these are the legalistic. These are, are Jews who were very strong, very zealous in their faith, who loved the idea of Christ, the Christian God wanted what Jesus did, but still brought with them all of the baggage of, I have to do that, that, go to this, do that, there. And so they would say, right, the heresy is the reason you are struggling, the reason you keep um, fearing, the reason that you're lacking sleep, the reason you're still addicted is because you're not doing enough things. You need to do this, that, and that, and that, and then you will be clean. And so they just constantly talk, which is, we hear it, you know, like, if you just showed up to service, you would actually learn. Now, there's a truth in that, right? But the lie is, that is what's missing, is I'm just not showing up. No, the lie is you have no desire to the Lord who's present there. Like, that's just it, right? Like, there's a reason you're, we, we, we are late or stagnant or lazy in our faith, and it's not because we need to do more. We're just not seeing Jesus as the image of the invisible God worthy of everything. And so he's battling these two things and he's taken this prayer. He ends the prayer and then he gets into what I believe is one of the most beautiful just psalms, beautiful songs. It's a poem of who Jesus is. Like I cry when I read this by myself. Like it's just, it's beautiful. So verse 15, he, he's, he's really excited. I, I just feel like Paul is excited. He's prayed for them, and now he's about to like show and prove Christ's sufficiency, prove how enough he is by saying, this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Be shocked, because this is Jesus. So I'm going to read it, 
and we're going to dive into it. And uh, I, I was telling Dalton, Dalton loves his three points. I'm not a three-point pastor. Forgive me. Uh, but I was like, Dalton, I'm really having a hard time coming up with like any type of point from this because the word just has it. And so you guys better take notes because I don't have much points other than the Bible, but I'll give you some like add-ins as we go. I highlighted some things so that you know what I'm, where I'm stopping at when we stop. But it's, I'm excited. So he, Paul says this, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought Jesus wasn't born. He's not born. He was not born of God. He was, uh, all right, so that's a... Boom, boom, boom. What this word actually means is he has the birthright of all creation. Everything that flowed is his inheritance. He has first place. He is like the firstborn, meaning the firstborn gets everything. He has everything. He existed before. That word means superior. He's the image of the invisible God. This is so important because for the Gnostics, for the Judaizers, They need to realize that like, yeah, I might be made in God's image, but Jesus was the image. I might be made in God's image, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's not like Christ-like. He's not God-like. He is God. And so it continues. It is, he says, of all creation for in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Some of you believe in a God, the creator, but struggle to believe that this man, Jesus, was with him, is him. The word was with God, was God, in the beginning, God. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all of those things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, hold together. This is the beautiful thing. You want to talk about a God who's present. God, with the Gnostics believed, God is distant. God, that I must climb to the heights of of knowledge, the depths of understanding in order to fathom him. But this God, he's not just this distant God that created things. He's a God that manages, holds. In him, all things came to existence, and now all things are held by him. It's really powerful. It's really crazy. When Paul talks to the, the church of Rome and he says, like, the, uh, there's objects of wrath, those who will never know God, and there's objects of mercy, those who, who will know God's mercy. But the Lord of the universe patiently holds all of them. That's what's going on right here. That all things are held together by Jesus. You see, through him. A lot of us, we want to understand who God is through many things. The world, I told you, I've had so many conversations the past few weeks of people wanting to know who God is and think that through this I may know, but they fall out because it's actually through him all things were created. Through him, through Jesus. Now, this is a fun thing, um, when I, and this is an aside. Uh, when I was in theology school, when I was in class, I remember we were talking about heaven and hell. Here's just a little fun little, little aside. Uh, heaven and hell, heaven, where is heaven? And we learned heaven is everywhere that God is. Well, where's God? God is everywhere. So the kingdom of God is everywhere that God is, everywhere that he reigns. Well, where's the kingdom of God then? Everywhere that God is. If God is everywhere, then heaven is everywhere. And we're like, okay, mind blown. But then all things are held together by Jesus. 
But where's the one place that Jesus isn't? Hell. And we read in scripture that it's this image of a lake of fire, constant pain, constant torment. The torment isn't because it's a punishment of God. The, the torment is because it's a punishment of the absence of God. So much so that those who are like little scientific people, what happens when you try to split apart atoms? Boom. And so very literally, the God of the universe chose to not only make you and let you play, but he holds us together. My lungs breathe because Jesus holds them together. But the absence of Jesus, when you take Jesus out of the equation, constant fire, literal pain is experienced. Is that, like, that's just like mind blown. The only place where Jesus isn't is a place where there's no holding then. Constant chaos. This is why we have a God who holds us and says the image, but he continues. He said, he, God, Jesus is the image, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, this is the hard thing is because the Judaizers were like, it's all about first place themselves. Like, it's, it's really like, I need to understand so that I can be better. Uh, and it's a rate, rating myself with them, very hierarchy system. In fact, some of you won't even have conversations with me. And that's like the, the heaviness of being a pastor sometimes. Genuinely, some of you believe deep down that like my relationship with God is just something that you can't understand that I'm like on this different level, that I'm not a real person or I don't really have problems. And if I do, like I battle them like that. And so already that's a Gnostic idea. The idea that Greg has scaled to the heights and he's left us behind. No, he has first place in all things. There's no like, there's no, I don't go to anything else but him. And we, we like to do that, but it, he continues for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to him th- himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth, or in heaven, or by making peace, all by making peace through the blood of his cross. Now, I just want to, the word reconcile means make peace, to have peace with. And there are many things. Did you notice who it is through in this? It says, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile. And I just, through Jesus, God, this idea of the bigness of God, the the creator God, the the idea of God of the universe, it falls falls flat on its face when you don't want to submit to the idea of who the reconciliation even comes through. It's through Jesus. The God of the universe made himself known through Jesus, by making, making peace through the blood of his cross. It's all about Jesus. And then he continues, and this is where we're landing, this little section. I had to like slash, slash it into one, all right? So here it is. I'll get out of the way so we can read it together. It says, and you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, you were doing evil deeds. Paul's now saying, all right, here's the God who I'm talking about, who is present, but now you. You were once estranged and hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. And he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death. You. Now, I just want to pause. You want to know why he, 
I know that what Paul is talking about here is the God who's present. Because if not, he wouldn't have talked about what you were previously as being estranged. Do you know the word estranged means a foreigner? It means alienated. It means an outcast. He's making it very present. I needed you to know, Colossians, I needed you to know, Glory Church, that you were once an outcast, alienated. You were once hostile in your mind. You were once doing evil deeds, but you have been reconciled to him. You've been reconciled to him. Now, the beauty of this word, reconciled, as many of you know it, like, that means like to be made peace, have peace with, connected with. You know, it's, it's reconciled. It is now redeemed. But this word is really cool. It has the word pro in front of it, which means completely reconciled, past tense. And then it says, so that he may present you holy and blameless and spotless, right? Above reproach, without fault, And then it has this caveat, and this is where I need to sit for a bit. It has this caveat. It says, provided that, or if you look in your Bibles, maybe it says, assuming that, or it says, if indeed you continue securely established, steadfast in your faith, if you are not moving, shifting from the hope promised by the gospel. And now I got to tell you, as we dive into this little section because this is the, he is taking this idea of the God who's present and now making it very known to us. But there's something that I know very well, the Gnostics who would be reading this, the Judaizers who would be reading this would get stuck on this presentation of holy, blameless, and irreproachable because a lie that you and I believe is often the opposite of those words. What we believe about ourselves are often the antonym to those words, but because it's interesting, I don't know about you, my hope feels shaky. But he said, like, this is true of you if your hope doesn't feel shaky. Anyone else, like, struggle with being securely established in your faith? Anyone else compromise? So is Paul saying in this that because you compromise, you have lost the reconciliation? This is really important for you to understand. Paul says you've been reconciled, past tense. Past tense, reconciled. The Greek word means past tense. It has has the past on it. But then the next, the reason you've been reconciled is for his glory. But now it's so that you may be presented. And this word, the Greek is really fun. It's not a past tense. It's a present and continual tense meaning it's happening. So now that you've been reconciled, it's now, now Jesus has this opportunity to consistently present you as holy, blameless, without reproach, assuming that you hold fast to the faith. Not that the faith, you you having a lacking of faith will unreconcile you. No, you having a lack of faith will just mean, hey, bro, you're reproachable right now and I need to call you out on that. Does that make sense? Like the, 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 the provided that you are securely established is so huge because uh, Paul is hitting at something and I don't want to, I want it to land when it needs to land. But there's something that I know so, to be so true about myself. And if you want to have a note, it's this. The idea of being presented holy and blameless and above reproach feels impossible to our flesh. It does. 
Paul is trying to challenge their theology of who God is and who they are. Because to the Judaizers, this is why the heresy was there. I don't feel holy, so I must do holy things to be holy. I don't feel blameless, so I must do the acts of blamelessness so that I will be blameless. This is like the, the mantra of the Judaizers to, the, to the, the Gnostics. You are not, you don't know what it means to be holy, so you need to scale to the mountaintops of knowledge so that you can make holy decisions. And that's just not what he is saying, because I don't know about you, but on the daily, my insecurities, my doubts, my worries, my fears my lures, my lies that I believe, they actually speak the antonyms of those words. Like I want to say, this is a huge claim that Paul's making, that the Jesus of the, of, of the Gospels is making you, presenting you to be holy, blameless. And you guys, we don't walk that way often because we don't believe that he's doing it. It's a very interesting, so the antonyms, I just want to like, the antonyms of the word holy are sinful, unclean, cursed, profane, contaminated, messed up, broken, defiled. Like I, I really felt the Lord said, I need you to like hit on the antonyms so that people can see the power of what Jesus is actually presenting people as. Because I don't know about you, but I believe fully that the majority of you in the room think that you mess up constantly because you are messed up constantly. But we have a God that is presenting you wholly. So how do you reconcile those thoughts? You begin to believe what his work is, but we doubt his work being presently done. And so we feel anything but holy. Some of you still feel you are fused of your old life and your new life. And you're still like watered down and, and you, can't, you, can't be, you can't be fixed. You think the abuse that happened to you as a child has defiled you, and no matter how many times you pray it away, you don't believe? So the Lord that says, I'm presenting you holy, you struggle to believe it, and so you constantly are missing the presence of Jesus. The opposite of blameless, worthy to blame, faulty, guilty, defective. Jesus says, I present them blameless. Some of you, some of you, depending on where your pride meter is, you either, you think that you are worthy to blame, that it's all your fault, or you think that you are worthy to blame others, that it's all their fault, right? Like, think of it. It's still the same. You're, you're worthy to blame others because you feel like there's this defective thing that is happening, and you feel angry and bitter and guilty, and there's something wrong in you, so you want to like, blame other people for it, too, But then the opposite, you think there's something wrong with you, so you want to blame yourself for it too. It's both. But what Jesus presents us as is blameless. There is no reason to blame. There's no reason to blame. And it's powerful. But then the last one, the opposite of beyond reproach or irreproachable is accused, condemned, shameful, perishable, You see, often it's not the sin that we keep doing. It's the sting of sin, which is death, the smell of it. And it's the shame that keeps us from ever realizing how present Jesus is. Where the enemy keeps saying, shame, accused, condemned. We're missing how present the cross is. 
He is the image of the invisible God. In him, all things were created. And now he holds all things together. He has reconciled you. He is with you. In fact, like I feel closer sometimes to the antonym of those words than the very words that Jesus claims that I'm being presented as, right? Often you feel closer to these words than white, than the words that Jesus is presenting you to be. That doesn't mean that you need to do more. That means you have an error of faith. You have an error in what you're putting your hope in. Does that mean, Gnostics would say, so do more. (laughs) Do more. In fact, like, honestly, those deep feelings of being impure, faulty, defective, we can fill all the lists. They are what lead us to, to pursue anything but Jesus in the first place. This is why the Gnostics were like, do it. Like, learn more. But it's that deep abiding feeling of I'm impure that leads me to think that I have to fix myself in order to come to Christ. But he's like already with me. You see, there's a lie. And I believe this too at times. Like I, I have moments in my like sermons where I'm like, hey, just be vulnerable. I spent an hour Kate judged me hard. We went to a dance uh, for the kids, and uh, Kate just, like, judged me, hands down. She was, like, called me out on it. Uh, And I took the longest out of all of our family to get ready for this little kid dance. I tried on four shirts. Was unhappy with three of them. And the re... Like, we can laugh. Uh... I, it, it just, for some reason, in my mind, I was like, I, one, a lot of them are non-believers. One, like, my kids are nine, and the average person who has nine-year-old kids are automatically, like, in their late 30s. Like, and so we're the youngest ones. And so already I got the baby face. I was like, every shirt I'm putting on just makes me look even younger. Like, I just feel like a baby, and I'm going to carry my babies. And I just, I was, like, in my head. I say all of that. Because we often feel like we are the ones that have to do the cleaning because we are the ones that do the presenting. But that's not true of what the Bible is saying. Literally, the reason we feel insecure or faulty or defective leads us to believing the lie that like, I have to fix it so that I can present myself as the opposite. But then it's you doing the cleaning and you doing the presenting. Me doing the hour of getting ready and then me doing the walking in, right? Like, that's not the point. Instead, he has done the reconciling so that he may do the presenting. And he doesn't present us to the world. He presents us to the Father. And it's this very, it's this shift in thinking. Jesus has reconciled me. I don't have to prove or present myself to anyone because he constantly proves and presents me to the Father. And this is powerful. Now, like, here's where I want to do this little mic drop with this. Paul says he reconciles us so that he can present us. If you're taking notes, write that word present us and just like underline it because I need you to understand what this is and what it isn't. This is not, and here's a little word, word story for you, a little imagery. This is not the pageant mom who is spending hours with her little girl, okay? You, you with me? One of those pageant moms who's spending hours with her little girl 
doctoring her up, putting the makeup, telling her to smile more, getting her dance ready, and then is in the background of the, the back saying, you can do it as she is presented for everyone to see holy, blameless, and irreproachable. This is also not the idea, have you ever seen like a little dog show where the, the owner's like, here, come here. And the dog is going, but everyone's judging the dog. And there's judgment on, on how good the dog is doing. And we, we, is, is he obedient or not obedient? It's not the presenting like that. And it's not the presenting like the little girl. In fact, the word doesn't even mean, let me show you a presentation. What it means is to be near in proximity of, to exist with. Now, that's a huge difference because then what it's literally saying is Jesus doesn't present you to the Father as holy and blameless and is like, cool, they're holy and blameless because then Jesus is gone and you're like, what do I do to remain this way? Mom's in the back cheering me on and I'm scared. Or the dog is like, this is a different place than normal. The image is Jesus being with you and you existing with him in his holiness, blamelessness, and above reproach. Does that make sense? Like he is, it's his with you that make you holy. So it's when you take yourself out of the equation of Jesus that you begin to feel everything that you're not anymore. Because you've been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. And the life that you live now is one of holiness, being blameless, being above reproach. This is why Paul says, so I need you to believe, provided that you have faith that he actually did what you said he's doing. That you have hope. This is so huge because honestly, we need to understand this, the Gnostics, the, the Judaizers needed to understand this because it's the moment that we take our eyes off of Jesus that we begin to sink like Peter in the water into our fears, our insecurities, our doubts. Now, the reality is, was Jesus still with Peter? Yes. Is Jesus still with you as you falter in your, your, your insecurities? Yes, the point is not that you are impure. The point is you're not noticing the God who is presenting with you. Does that make sense? In all things, in all things, in all ways, it does not mean that God was not there for Peter or God is not there for you in your storm. It does mean, if you want to take a note, that you are believing currently that your situation your surrounding, your circumstance is more present than he is. He is the image of the invisible God for in him, all things hold together. Paul's trying to let them know you don't have to excel. You don't have to go to the mountaintops or go to the deep to find him. He is everywhere in all things. And now he presents you with him, blameless, holy, but the moment that you believe your situation, the things that are practically around you are more present than he is, is the moment you will start compromising. Some of you have done it, and it's real. The moment your divorce became more present than he was. Let's all be honest. You might have said some choice words that you shouldn't have said. The moment that that heartache was more present in your mind than Jesus was, that's when our hope feels shaky. 
It's a moment when that water became more present than Jesus was, that he began to sink in it. It's a moment when the bad day begins to be more present in our mind than Jesus is, that we start faltering in our belief, our hope begins to be shaky. But if we would pause, he is in me. He is with me. He is before me. He is around me. He is moving. He is there. He is ahead of me. He is behind me. He's here. He is claiming me. He is speaking. He is moving. If you start claiming what Jesus is doing, you might be aware of it. You might start being aware of it. And I tell you, how do I know this is exactly what Paul is talking about? This idea of your situation? How do I know this is exactly what Paul is talking about? Because uh, when, I, when, I write, when I, uh, write about scripture or write my sermons, I like to look before and after. And you should never take a verse out and try to make sense of it. You should always let it sit in the text. Literally, the next verse says this. Oh, sorry, the one right before that. There, nope, nope, it might not be there. Ah, oh, sad day. You're gonna have to read up, open your books, and I will, I'll... It says, I am, verse 24. So we just read 23 together. Now we're in 24. He says, I am now rejoicing in my suffering for your sake. Literally, now, I just want this to hit, you're, you're not understanding, because it wasn't up there, and I'm sorry. But he's telling them, God is presenting you holy, right? Blameless, irreproachable. And then I feel like he looked down at his hands and noticed that there's shackles on them. He looked down at his feet and noticed there were shackles on them. He looked around and noticed, I'm in a jail cell. And I feel like he needed to bring himself into this. Not in an ulterior way, but in a humble way. Because I feel like he needed to pause and remember for himself, I'm not what men claim me to be. I'm not what my situation claims me to be. Literally, look at the text. He says, Jesus presents you as holy, blameless, irreproachable. This is written from a man that the world would claim as not holy because he's in jail, not blameless because he's in prison, not irreproachable, like, right? Because he's in prison. But Jesus, Jesus has made him that way. I feel like Paul just paused, looked at his hands, and said, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my suffering. For I'm filling up, it literally says, for I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Jesus' blood on the cross, now I get to suffer in jail. Like he's, he's connecting himself into this and it's such a beautiful way. It's such a beautiful way. And then he continues, and, and he has given me a commission to make the word of God fully known. And now that, verse 26, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. Like to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He's just like going on it. it it's almost like I, I struggle to believe it, right? He, I believe. I, I believe what I shouldn't believe, Paul has written. I do what I don't want to do, and what I do do, 
I shouldn't do. It's like he's in jail. Pause. Jesus is presenting me as holy, blameless. And so I'm rejoicing in my sufferings because he's given me a mystery, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And then he ends this chapter saying, it is him that I proclaim. I warn everyone and I teach everyone in all wisdom so that I may present everyone mature. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. He's preaching that Christ that is present. Like I can literally feel him as he's reading this, pause and say, uh, I might be faulty in man's eyes, but I'm holy in the Lord's. So I'll rejoice in the bad thing, the surrounding. I will rejoice in what is around me currently because I know that Jesus is more present. He's more present in it. Band, you guys can come on up. He's connecting his suffering to hope. It's like, I wrote this, I just feel like in this prison, in this suffering, he's believing, hey, uh, God is with me too. What I'm doing is, is for the church, the prison that I'm in. He's connecting it to hope. Notice, if you will, that next slide, he, he writes this. Provided that you continue securely established in faith without shifting from hope. This word hope is where I want to end this morning. Hope is the assurance that what you don't see, God is still doing. Hope is even in the not yet, I believe that he is doing it. Hope is even though I'm being called a prisoner currently, I am free eternally. That's hope is claiming that which isn't yet, but trusting that it will be. Hope is saying I may not be presented right now and feel like I'm being presented as holy and blameless, but I have hope in the fact that he's doing it. He's doing it. And I tell you, many of the times you pray for peace, you pray for joy, but you don't really pray for hope often, do you? And then you wonder, why do I still feel this lack of being pure, blameless? Because you need hope that the Jesus is with you is doing it. There's this moment, and I get all the really nerdy. Uh, one year before Paul wrote this to the church of uh, Colossae, he wrote a letter to the, book, to the church in Rome and he talks about hope. And he says, hope is something you need. Hope does not disappoint. He literally says, hope doesn't put you to shame. Many of you, you hope in things that are man-made. That's what the, the Gnostics were teaching. Knowledge will give you everything you need. This will give you, no, I hope in the Lord. I hope in him. I'm going to choose to see him in this situation. I'm going to choose to see him in these waters. In fact, I'm going to just pray this, this chapter over you. It's chapter 5 of Romans when he says hope. He connects it to his suffering. Since you've been justified, reconciled, you've been given peace with God. You've been obtained access to his grace. 
So he says, now we boast in our hope. Not only that, will we boast in our sufferings. Knowing that the situation that I'm in, the circumstance that I'm in has the opportunity to produce endurance in me if I just hoped in what Jesus was doing. If I just proclaim it, boast in what he's doing. And that endurance produces character. And the character produces more hope. And it does not disappoint us. You know the, the song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood? His righteousness? I think many of you need to start saying that. Thanks for listening to the Glory Podcast. For more information about this message or Glory Church, please visit glorychurchkc.com.